All right, as Pastor Bruce said, we'll be reading from the book of Acts, so if you'll stand with me, please, and turn to Acts chapter 11. We'll be finishing the last portion of Acts 11. We'll be reading uh, verses 19 through 30. If you didn't bring a Bible with you today, there's a pew Bible in front of you. You can find it on page 635 as Pastor Bruce preaches on the church at Antioch. Please follow along as I read Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and when he had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people, and the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the church and your, your passion and your mission for the church. And just uh, pray we would learn from the church of Antioch how, uh, how our church can be and what we can do. And just open our hearts and minds to, uh, to hear from you. Be with Pastor Bruce as he brings our message this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we get started, I just want to say a big thank you to uh, those ladies that were here Friday morning and uh, to help decorate our, our church auditorium. Isn't it beautiful? Yeah. And uh, they also decorated downstairs in our multi-purpose room, and I always appreciate them each and every year coming uh, during the Christmas season here for the month of December to have our, our church uh festive like it is, and, uh, and thank you to each of you who took time to, uh, to buy one of the poinsettias in honor of or memory of uh, a friend or a family member, and I really appreciate you all doing that, and uh, it just, again, uh, makes our auditorium just look really beautiful, and uh, of course, uh, there's, if you want to know who those people are, you can take notice in the bulletin there, there's an insert of all the names of those who bought a poinsettia in memory or honor of, and you can read through that here. Uh, and so thank you very, very much. Uh, I'm sure most of you are familiar uh, with Mount Everest. At over 29,000 feet above sea level, Mount Everest is the highest mountain in the world. The year 1922 marked the first serious attempt by an expedition to climb to the summit of Mount Everest. For years, it was considered an impossible feat, and many turned back, and some died attempting the feat. But 31 years later, in 1953, an ordinary man named Edmund Hillary, 
who had been a beekeeper in the summer to support his winter hobby of climbing, finally made it to the summit with a Sherpa guide named Tenzing Norgay. Even after Hillary and Norgay reached the peak, most summit attempts failed. By 1990, 37 years later, the success rate for reaching the summit was still only 18%. By 2012, though, the success rate for reaching the summit was now over 56%. And in 2010, Jordan Romero became the youngest climber ever to summit to the top of Mount Everest at the age of, get this, 13 years old. Since Hillary made it to the top as of 2013, over 4,000 climbers have ascended the summit of Mount Everest. Now there are long lines of hundreds of people each year, and Tibet is considering installing ladders in places to make it easier, and it is now something of a tourist destination for the rich. What was once previously unheard of, and thought to be unreachable, is now relatively commonplace. The summit of Mount Everest. In much the same way, Acts 11 marks a great shift from spreading the gospel to the Jews in Jerusalem to now spreading the gospel to the Gentiles to the ends of the earth. What was once previously unheard of, that is, that the gospel is for all peoples. And that people who were once thought to be unreachable, that is, the Gentiles, are now being saved through faith in Jesus Christ. And, and they're being brought into the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, when you look over the whole book of Acts here, the principal theme, the, the big idea, if you will, of the book of the Acts is really the, the spread of the gospel, the triumph of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And from its beginning in Jerusalem, as we saw in Acts 1, Acts 2, and up till now, we have already seen its expansion even into Judea and Samaria. And now, now here in Acts 11, we are beginning to see the gospel spread to the ends of the earth to all peoples. And so Acts 11 marks a great shift. It also marks a shift in focus in the book of Acts from the Jerusalem church to the church at Antioch. In fact, notice this in your notes coming up on the screen. Uh, just see how God used both of these churches to spread the gospel to the ends of the world. But you'll notice the differences between them. Take a look at the Jerusalem church here, it was founded by named apostles. And, and the key apostle being whom? Peter. Peter was the key leader of the Jerusalem church. Whereas the Antioch church, it was founded by unnamed disciples. We don't know any of their names. The Jerusalem church is made up of mono-ethnic believers. That is one nationality. The Jews whereas the Antioch church is made up of multi-ethnic believers, and so you have many, many nationalities that comprise the church at Antioch. The Jerusalem church was a, a mission base to the Jews in Jerusalem. And yes, they did even spread out to Judea and Samaria, and what we will see today even to 
uh, the Gentiles here in Antioch. But the Antioch church, it becomes a mission base to the Gentiles to the ends of the earth. In fact, you go to Acts chapter 13 and we see them sending out some of their own people on missionary journeys. Sending them out to the ends of the earth to spread the gospel. This Jerusalem church was scattered as a result of persecution. Whereas the Antioch church, it actually started as a result of that persecution. And so you see these two churches. You have the Jerusalem church and then you have the Antioch church. And there is a shift now from one church to the next church. And so what we see with these two churches is what Jesus actually talked about, what he actually predicted in Matthew 16. He was building his church. The first ten chapters of Acts is, is focused on the Jerusalem church. It was the first church Jesus built. It was a remarkable church that God used to reach the Jews with the gospel. And so we give thanks for how God used the Jerusalem church. But in many ways, the church here in Antioch is a better example of the kind of church we are to be, a kind of church that we desire to be. In his book, The Case for Antioch, Jeff Org argues that the church at Antioch is the, the best example in the New Testament of what a New Testament church is supposed to be. He says, Antioch is an ancient model for the future church. In other words, it's an ancient model for our church today, here in the 21st century. And so the question becomes, well, what makes the Antioch church such a great church to follow? What makes it a, a model church for our church? Well, there are many marks of this church that stand out, even in this particular chapter and in subsequent chapters in the book of Acts that we could highlight and emphasize, but I want us to focus this morning on three from what we read here in Acts chapter 11. And as we do, may we as a church, may we commit to follow their example. And so like the church at Antioch, number one, let us proclaim the gospel to all peoples with courage. Like the church at Antioch, let us do the same. Let us proclaim the gospel to all peoples with courage. Look what it says in verse 19. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn there. You can use the Pew Bible as well. We're in Acts 11. In verse 19, it says, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. Now what Luke is doing, remember Luke is the author of the book of Acts, the writer here, and so Luke is taking us back to Acts chapter 8. You may remember, if you were here for that message, that when a great persecution arose against the Jerusalem church, it came about after Stephen was stoned to death for proclaiming the gospel. And Luke is taking us back to that case. The Jewish believers at that time were then, they were forced to flee for their lives from the city of Jerusalem. And so wherever they went, they took the gospel with them. And so that persecution back in Acts 8, the persecution where the leader of it was really Saul, if you remember. 
And it forced these Jewish believers to flee, and they took the gospel with them wherever they fled to, wherever they then made their homes. And so in a, in a real way, God used the persecution to simply serve the scattering of the seed of the gospel. God used persecution to accomplish His, per, his purpose of spreading the gospel. But notice this, God did it through people proclaiming the gospel. Those scattered witnesses, Luke here tells us that they actually went as far north of Jerusalem as Phoenicia, the Mediterranean island of Cyprus, and then all the way to the city of Antioch, proclaiming the gospel to the Jews only. Notice what it says here in verse 20. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Now this is an amazing reversal. You say reversal of what? A reversal from what we see in Acts chapter 6. Let me cue you in on that. If you go back to Acts 6, it was people from Cyprus and Cyrene who rose up and disputed against Stephen and actually brought him to the Jewish religious leaders, a, a, a council, if you will, to be judged. And, and if you remember in Acts 7, where they, at the end of it, they eventually killed Stephen. They stoned him to death. And it was these men from Cyprus and Cyrene who kind of really started it all. But now we see the power of the gospel at work in their lives. As some of the people from where? Luke says from Cyprus and Cyrene are now the ones who are boldly proclaiming the Lord Jesus to the Gentiles in Antioch. The city of Antioch. Oh, Antioch was a, a spectacular city. It's a city about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. And with a population of uh, anywhere around a half a million people to some estimate 700 million, Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire behind Rome and Alexandria. Its, um, its magnificent buildings helped give, give it the name Antioch, the Golden Queen of the East. The main street that ran through Antioch was more than four miles long. It was paved with marble and lined on both sides by marble colonnades. It was the only city in the ancient world at that time that had its streets lighted at night. Of course, not with electricity. You guys know that. As a cosmopolitan city, Antioch attracted all kinds of people, making it a very multi-ethnic city made up of Greeks, Syrians, Jews, Phoenicians, Persians, Arabs, Egyptians, and Indians. And so Antioch was very cosmopolitan, but it was a very immoral city. It was a city full of, of a variety of religions. In fact, it was famous for the worship of the goddess Daphne, whose worship included temple prostitution. And so Antioch, in a real way, was a was sin city. It was an immoral city. And yet, it was into this very city that some Jewish believers came proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to, to all peoples. When they first got there, these scattered, persecuted believers, they first proclaimed to the Jews only. But Luke tells us some of them, and in this case, the some was men from Cyprus and Cyrene, they began to proclaim it 
to all peoples, referring to the Gentiles. Talk about courage here. In fact, just notice the courage of the Antioch church here. In your notes, we could summarize it this way. After the persecution in Jerusalem and then fleeing to Antioch, some unnamed Christ followers proclaimed the gospel to Gentiles. And here's what's beautiful about that. God took their proclaiming. And, he, and Luke tells us then that a great number believed and were added to the church. It must have been intimidating, though, to proclaim Jesus in the midst of this multi-ethnic environment full of so many religious beliefs. But these men of Cyrene and Cyprus, they were undaunted by what they saw, what they experienced. And instead, they engaged the people and they boldly proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, why the gospel? Why proclaim Jesus? Well, because the gospel, the gospel is what makes a, a serious diagnosis of our souls. When you think about what the gospel is, the gospel communicates to us. And when we share it, in essence, we are sharing with people that we are sinners who are in need of a Savior, Jesus Christ. When you realize you're a sinner and you want to deal with your sin, you only have two options. You can either try to do better, which is really what religion is all about, or you can receive God's forgiveness in Jesus Christ, which is the message of Christianity. And this is why we proclaim Jesus Christ. It's why we proclaim the gospel. It's good news. It's the answer. It's the hope to everyone's need. Why? Because we have a problem of sin, and our need is found in Jesus Christ, the gospel. And so God blessed they're witnessing as they proclaimed it. It says in verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed. What did they believe? They believed in Jesus. They believed the message of Jesus and turned to the Lord. In other words, they repented of their sins and turned to Jesus Christ for salvation. The commentator, pastor, and author Warren Wiersbe, some of you may be familiar with that name, he put it this way, the word of God was on their lips, and the hand of God was on their witness, and a great number of sinners repented and believed. It was a thrilling work of God's wonderful grace. It's amazing to see this. It's amazing to think about this happening. How God used the persecution of believers in Jerusalem in Acts 8 to now reach unbelievers in Antioch here in Acts 11. But what's even more amazing to me here is that God did it through some unnamed followers of Jesus Christ. Think about that for a moment. We don't even know these people's names. Luke just tells us as some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene. That's it. That's all we know of them. But they went proclaiming the gospel with courage. And as they did it, many people believed and turned to Jesus for salvation. These men were not the apostles. They were not the, the 12 disciples that followed Jesus through his ministry. 
They weren't the leaders of the Jerusalem church. They were were lay people, if you will, of the Jerusalem church that when persecution came, they scattered. But they had the power of God upon their lives and they had the courage to live for Jesus as a testimony and proclaim Him. And God used them in a miraculous way, in a mighty way. Just think, in the midst of this massive city of darkness and depravity, God used ordinary Christ followers to shine the light of the gospel. Does not not give you hope for your own witnessing? Boy, it gives me hope that God can use me when I proclaim, as I proclaim. God can take all my imperfections, what I do and don't, you know, in stumbling around or whatever the case may be, and He can use it to turn people to the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in Him for salvation. Unnamed, lay people, Christ followers just like us. That's how the birth of this church came about. It's amazing. As one author writes, some of the most significant work for the kingdom has been done by unknown witnesses who are obedient to Christ right where they are and where they do not attract much attention. I love what Count Zitzendorf, who was a a pastor and a missionary in the 1700s, he said this. Listen to his words. This is an amazing quote. He simply says, preach the gospel, die, and then be forgotten. Preach the gospel, die, and then be forgotten. In other words, he's saying, don't worry about being remembered here on earth. Why? Because God will remember you in heaven. And while you're here serving Him on earth, don't worry about making a name for yourself here on earth. Instead, make it your focus to make Jesus' name famous all over the earth and where you're living. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Listen, these men from Cyprus and Cyrene, they may be unknown, and they may be forgotten by people here on earth, but they are not forgotten by God himself. God records it here in his word for us to even learn from today. And so like these men from Cyprus and Cyrene, may us, let us proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to all peoples. A second takeaway from the church of Antioch is let us remain true to the Lord with commitment. Let us remain true to the Lord. What God was doing in Antioch here with the salvation of so many Gentiles, let me tell you, this is groundbreaking news. And so when the Jerusalem church heard about what was going on, they decided to send one up there, send someone up there to check it out. And they definitely picked the right guy for the job. They sent Barnabas, who, whom someone has called the man with the biggest heart in the church. Look what Luke writes in, in verse 22 about Barnabas. He says, the news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. You say, news of what things? All these Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus Christ and this church forming. And they sent Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man 
full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. And so when Barnabas came to Antioch and surveyed the scene, what did he see? He, it says, Luke tells us he saw the grace of God. How many of you have ever seen the grace of God? You can't literally see the grace of God. What we see, though, is the results or the effects of the grace of God working in us and through us. And Barnabas, when he gets to Antioch, he sees the evidence of the grace of God on these people. He could see that God had changed these people. He could see the evidence of changed lives in these Gentiles. And when Barnabas saw the grace of God on these Gentiles, let me tell you, it says he was what? What was he? He was glad. This is the opposite of another servant of God. A servant of God, I know most of you have heard about. You may remember his name of Jonah. It's the opposite of Jonah's response when God told him to go to a city, the city of Nineveh, and warn the people to repent of their sins and to turn to God for salvation. And of course, when he preached to them the good news of God's grace and mercy, those people responded and they turned and they were saved. And do you remember how Jonah reacted to that when he saw that? When he saw the grace of God on their lives, Jonah was sad. He was depressed because the people whom he disliked had actually received God's grace. But now here, when Barnabas saw that these Gentiles had received God's grace, oh man, he was glad. This word glad, it actually has the idea to rejoice. In other words, when he saw this, it gave him joy in his heart. Almost the same way when we saw the Royals win the World Series, what did it do to us? Man, were you not in your living room jumping up and down, shouting, well, yeah! I mean, you're going nuts. When we got that final out and when Hosmer scored that ninth inning tying run and we just knew we were going to win it then, right? And we were swelled up with excitement and joy. That's the same idea here. Barnabas, no, he didn't see the royals win. He saw something greater than that. He saw the grace of God at work in and through these people. And it made him glad. And it motivated him to encourage these new believers in their faith. In fact, this is where we see the commitment of the Antioch church, notice this, they were committed to the teaching of God's Word. As Barnabas goes about encouraging these new believers, it says a great many people were added to the Lord. And he, he quickly realizes, he quickly figures out, he needs help in teaching them. And so according to verse 25, it says, Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. You see, Barnabas realizes that the church here at Antioch, it's an infant church, it's a new church, and it is now growing numerically. But folks, he realizes that's not enough. They need to grow spiritually. And so he recruits some help. He recruits none other than Saul to help him teach 
this growing church in Antioch. Now, we don't know what Barnabas said to Saul to convince him to leave his hometown of Tarsus and make a trek to Antioch and to stay for a whole year. What we do know is that for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul, these two tandem guys, were teaching the Word of God. And the people were committed to hearing it. They were committed to being under the Word of God, the teaching and preaching of it. And what do you think? What do you think was the first lesson that Barnabas taught these new believers? If you have a group of new believers, what are you going to teach them? What's the first thing? They need to understand a lot of stuff, right, about the Word of God, about salvation. So what's the first thing he's teaching them? Well, notice it. Luke tells us, according to verse 23, Barnabas encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with purpose of heart. It's the first thing he exhorts them to do. The same Lord that they had come to now in faith, they now had to cling to. They had to continue with as Christ followers. Folks, listen, I get it why Barnabas is teaching him this. I fully understand why this is the first thing he's encouraging with. As a pastor, this is always the concern any church leader has for new believers. And be honest with you, any and all believers in Jesus Christ. This is my concern for every one of you who claim to be a believer in Jesus Christ here this morning. As your pastor, my heart's concern is that you will remain true to the Lord and continue in the faith in which you confess and believe in. That you don't abandon the faith. That you don't deviate to the faith. Why? Because living as a Christian is not always easy, is it? Satan wants to attack and Satan wants you to leave the faith. He wants you to quit the faith. He wants you to abandon. He wants you to walk out on the people of God. He wants you to walk out on the Son of God. He wants you to give up. And so Barnabas comes, and the first thing he does is he exhorts them, listen, remain true to the Lord with purpose of heart. Persevere. To the end. Steadfastness in the Christian life, folks, listen, it is not an accident. It is intentional. And it happens with purpose of heart through the teaching of God's Word. I can almost hear Barnabas teaching these new believers. And him in some house, in a synagogue somewhere, whatever the case, it wouldn't be in a synagogue because this is a Gentile city, but whatever it would have been, as he gathers with them and he begins to exhort them through the teaching of the Word of God, remain true, remain true, don't give up, don't give up. Hardship is coming, persecution is coming, and we will see that next Sunday in Acts 12. It comes fast and it comes quick. Don't give up. Up, remain true to the Lord. And what do we learn here for ourselves then? 
We learn that when we get in the faith, we must go in it and we must grow in it. And for that to happen, we must be taught about it in God's Word. This is why, if you've ever wondered, this is why we have a discovery hour here at our church. This is why we have a worship service. Because we at Glenwood, we are committed to the teaching and preaching of God's Word in the context of a local church. Today, today in our culture, it is not unusual to meet people who who claim they are Christians, but act as if they have no need for the church. They claim they believe the gospel, but they aren't continuing in it. They're not growing in it within the context of a local church where God's Word is regularly taught. As one pastor put it, he puts it like this, and I quote his words. He says, it's like a child who learns how to write their letters and then drops out of school after the first grade acting like their basic knowledge of the alphabet is sufficient for the rest of their lives. But just because you know how to spell cross doesn't mean you know how to carry one. Just because you can quote John 3.16 doesn't mean you're growing in the Lord who actually said those words. This is why. This is why we make it a priority. This is why, as Christ followers, we are committed to hearing and being under the teaching and preaching of God's Word on a regular basis. Because God knows, just as Barnabas knew, we need to remain true. That's the exhortation, but how does that happen? Not by accident. It happens through a commitment to the teaching of God's Word. Listen, I've been a pastor here now long enough. And in case you're wondering, it's 14 years. Yeah, believe it or not, time flies, doesn't it? And so I've been in, in, before that I was a youth pastor. So I've been a part of ministry here for 20 years now. And so I've seen this happen long enough. When, when Christ followers begin to, and how, I want to say this, tactfully, but firmly, lovingly. But when we begin to make the priority of the teaching of the Word of God on a regular basis by our attendance at church on Sundays, and when that becomes less and less, there's always a cause and effect on that, almost, always. You can almost predict it. When people start seeing them at church, less and less, their walk with the Lord begins to deviate. And you're like, why is that? Because God knows to remain true to Him, you've got to have the teaching of the Word of God in your life. That's why you see in the book of Acts a commitment by, the, by believers in Christ, both in the Jerusalem church and here in the Antioch church, they are committed to meeting regularly to be under the teaching and preaching of God's Word. Folks, you just can't get around it. There is a correlation to it. This is why we provide a discovery hour. 
This is why we're committed to a worship service. This is why we are committed to actually teaching God's Word. During our discovery hour, in preaching it, and allowing me to exhort you through God's Word, to walk out of here hopefully challenged, convicted, and encouraged to remain true to the Lord, to not give up. Second, though, they were not only committed to the teaching of the Word of God, they were committed to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Paul told Timothy, get this, this is interesting, Paul tells young Timothy, who was a pastor, in 2 Timothy 1.8, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. And let me tell you, these new believers in Antioch were certainly not ashamed. They were committed to the testimony of Jesus Christ. In fact, they were so committed that it says at the end of verse 26, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. The name Christian, that was a new title. That was a new name coined in the context here in Antioch. But what or I should say, who came up with it? Let me tell you, it wouldn't have been the Jews. They considered the name Christ to be way too sacred to call these Gentile believers by that name. And it surely wouldn't have been the believers themselves, these believers here in Antioch. Why? They called themselves disciples, which basically means a learner or a Christ follower. They called themselves brethren. Hey, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. They even called themselves, we're followers of the, quote, the way. That is the way of Jesus Christ. And so it must have been the people here in the city of Antioch, the unbelieving city, that came up with this new name. But why? Why would people, unbelievers looking in at these new believers, why would they call them Christians? Well, apparently, Jesus is all these new believers talked about and lived like. Everywhere they went, Jesus was the subject on their lips, and he was the focus of their lives. The people in Antioch so associated these new believers with Jesus Christ and recognized something so different about these believers that they called them little Christ. That's actually what Christian means. Maybe they made up this new nickname as an insult. Maybe it was said in a derogatory way. Maybe it was a way to ridicule them. Hey, look at those Christians. Can you believe what these Christians do? But it quickly, listen, it quickly became a badge of honor for them to be called Christians. They were not ashamed to have their lives defined by none other than the one who died on the cross for them, rose from the grave for them, lives for them, and saved them. Jesus Christ. I wonder. I wonder if the same could be said of us who call ourselves Christians today. What would people call us if they watched our behavior? If they listened to our speech, if they read our Facebook posts, saw our Snapchat accounts, Instagram, would any of that identify us as being Christians? 
Maybe we should ask ourselves, is my identity in what I live for so much about Jesus that people would call me a Christian? Or, as is sometimes commonly put, often been asked, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to actually convict you? That's, that's an interesting question to consider, isn't it? Oh, that we would be so committed to the teaching of God's Word, so committed to the testimony of Jesus Christ, that people know we live for Jesus Christ. Like these believers at Antioch, let us remain true to the Lord with purpose of heart. Number three, let us give to people in need with compassion. One of the marks of a Christian is giving. And the Christians at Antioch gave with compassion when they heard of a future need. Luke writes in verse 27, And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now, what's a prophet? Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, that the apostles and the prophets were the foundation of the New Testament church. And once the foundation of the church was laid and that the scriptures were complete, that those gifts of being apostles and prophets passed off the scene. And according to 1 Corinthians 14.3, the function of a prophet was to edify, it was to exhort, it was to encourage from God's word, as well as to hear from God himself and then to share what they heard with believers in Christ. And so what we have here now is that a group of prophets come down from Jerusalem to, or actually they come up from Jerusalem to the city of Antioch, and one of them predicted that a famine was coming. We read in verse 28, look at it. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. In fact, what's interesting, history actually records that a severe famine struck the entire Roman Empire sometime after A.D. 41, and that there was a food shortage and an economic crisis that greatly affected Jerusalem during that time. One historian writes that many people died as a result of this historical famine. How then did these new Christians at Antioch respond to this coming famine? Luke tells us in verse 29, it says, Then the disciples, each according to his ability, that is his financial ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did, and they sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So what we see here now is the compassion of the Antioch church in action. Look at this. The disciples, as each was financially able, they sent relief to the believers in Judea in response to a great famine coming. Now at this point, the church in Antioch is giving in response to a future need. A future need as a result of a coming famine. And this coming famine just could have easily hit Antioch as it did Jerusalem and Judea. And the Christians in Antioch could have easily said, you know what? Man, we've we got to look out for ourselves here. Agabus is predicting a, a famine's coming. We don't know where it's going to hit. We've got to take care of ourselves. Man, let those Jewish believers take care of themselves. But no, these new believers, they trusted God and they gave 
each according to their financial ability, to help meet the needs of the believers in Jerusalem. And notice that each gave according to his ability. Listen, that, that is the pattern for our giving today. Paul goes on later in, in the New Testament here, and he teaches in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Paul says this about the churches in Macedonia who gave. In 2 Corinthians 8 3, he says, For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. And you say, Well, how do you give beyond your financial ability? Well, Paul goes on in that chapter and he says, It was by the grace of God. Why? Why do you think Luke mentions this for us? Why does Luke tell us that this, this, these, this young church here at Antioch, they give to meet a need? Why include that in the story of Acts? Well, there could be several reasons, but I believe Luke wrote about this because he wants us to see that God uses the voluntary giving of his people to support his mission. God used the giving of these believers at Antioch to be a blessing to others in need. God used their giving to demonstrate their love for people who, get this, were actually once hostile to them. Jewish believers who looked down on the Gentiles as dogs. And now these, quote, dogs are giving to these Jewish believers. What a demonstration of their love. What a demonstration of how Jesus reconciles relationships. God used their giving to support his church in spreading the good news about Jesus. And as a result, God poured out his blessing on the church at Antioch. These believers at Antioch came to believe in Jesus and then to be a blessing because of Jesus. And we have the same opportunity through our church here. Let me give you one example that's right in front of us, even in your bulletin, and that is our Christmas offering. As you know, for many years, our church has been participating in a Christmas offering for the purpose of funding our benevolence ministry. And so all the money that's given in our Christmas offering goes to fund that benevolence, which then we use that money to help meet the needs of people in our church. You all. As well as people in our community. And some of you have been on the receiving end of that offering. Some of you have been helped with utility bills, food assistance, whatever the case may be. And when we're made aware of that, or when people come and tell us, we, we're, we're like, well, come in, let's talk. What, what's your need? Let's, let's see if we can't help you out. And so you're like, when, when you give in that offering, what that money goes to, that's what it goes to. It helps people in our church. And it, believe me, it's a future need. We don't even, sometimes we're going to give now for a future need in 216 that we're not even aware of now. We just know there will be one, just like we, they knew a, a famine was coming. But also we use it to help people in need outside of our church in our community. And for many years, we've done that. Uh, only through with food assistance. And they had to live in our church's zip code, by the way, which is 6411. Hey, you guys are pretty good. So if they live, they call up, because let me tell you, every week we get a lot of phone calls, people needing help. And we go through a series of questions, and uh, if they live in our church's zip code, then they go through another process, 
and, um, and, and if they qualify, that we have them come into the church and we would help them with some food assistance. But now we're, we're changing that. In fact, just a few weeks ago, Kim and Dana um, had a meeting uh, with the social worker down at Crestview Elementary School. And most of you know we've had a partnership with the school right down the road for a lot of years. And, and, uh, and we're trying to renew that partnership a little bit. And so they went and had a, a meeting with them and just asked, how can we help you? How can we be a service of you? What needs do you have? Because there are some churches, they, they, they specialize in this, and they got this thing they do, and they got, you say, you know what, we, just, we need a church, I need a church that I can just call on in crisis. Uh, we got so many needs in our school, um, and so we said, you know what, why don't we take and divert what we do outside of our church in the community and divert it through Crestview Elementary School and work with uh, Kathy Monson, who's a social worker down there, and she identifies some families that are in need, and we'll not only help them with food assistance, but we'll help them with financial assistance as well. And, uh, and they'll come into our church, give us, Chris and I, opportunity to meet them, Kim and Dana, pray for them, for their need, introduce them to our church a little bit, and, and hopefully the prayer is God use it as a gateway, not just not to meet their, their physical needs, but to meet their spiritual needs. And it's then tied to the Crestview community the school, which, you know, as you know, if they're going to Crestview, they're in our church's community as well. And so let me encourage you to give to this Christmas offering. You can give any time now in the month of December all the way through the end of January. Uh, you'll be receiving a, a letter in the mail from me this week. There'll be giving envelopes for that. You don't have to use the giving envelopes. You can use just mark on your own giving envelope, Christmas offering. If you want to give online, you can mark Christmas offering. And everything you give goes to fund our benevolence ministry. And in a real way, we are, we're, we're following the example of the church of Antioch, are we not? I find that so cool. That's great. That's awesome. Now, let me just close it up. And I know this has been long. But let me close here. The church of Antioch was not a perfect church, by the way. You guys get that? It was not a perfect church. And, you're saying, and the reason is because there is no such thing as a perfect church. Have you found that to be true? There's no such thing as a perfect church. And why is that? Because churches are full of people. And there's no perfect people. And so if you're here at Glenwood and you're like, man, I thought I was looking for the perfect church and this isn't the perfect church, welcome to the imperfect church. Welcome to an imperfect pastor. All right? And yet, here's what's cool, and yet God used this church in remarkable ways. They proclaimed the gospel to all peoples with courage. They remained true to the Lord with commitment. They gave to people in need with compassion. And so this church is certainly a model for our church today. And so let us learn from them and follow their example. But us, let us also take notice of what ultimately made this church a model church. For without this defining mark... All that they did would have been done in their own power and would have been done in vain. So what is the defining mark, the most important mark of the Antioch church? See it here in your notes coming up on the screen. The hand of God was with them as they proclaim the gospel. Luke says this about the Antioch church in verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them. Oh, may that be said of us here at Glenwood. And the hand of the Lord was with them. 
May that be said of us as we go from here and we proclaim the gospel, as we stand here in our church and proclaim the gospel, and the hand of the Lord was with them. May that be said of us as we fulfill the mission of making fully devoted disciples. And the hand of the Lord was with them. You say, what does this mean? In the Old Testament, the, the figure of speech, the hand of the Lord, it referred to, get this, the power of God as expressed in both His blessing and His judgment. And so at the very least, it means that the Lord was blessing them as they proclaimed Jesus to the Gentiles. It means that God was guiding them. He was directing them. It means God was empowering these people, these believers, and enabling them. It means God was the one who was ultimately working in them and through them for His glorious purpose. Listen, the task before our church what we are facing today is just as urgent, just as necessary as it was in the days of Antioch. Listen, we have a dying world, and it is moving at breakneck speed to a lost eternity. And we have within our grasp the solution to everyone's greatest need, the gospel of Jesus Christ. God could save them without our efforts, but God has chosen to use us as imperfect as we are to tell them about Jesus. And in His sovereign grace, God will save them through our working, through our proclaiming, which means we desperately need the hand of God to be with us, do we not? Oh, we need it more than ever. We need... God's hand of blessing and power. To be upon myself, to be upon Pastor Chris, to be upon every ministry worker here, to be upon our church as we fulfill the mission and as we do ministry. For without it, we will do it in our own power and it will be done in vain. And so let us pray and I leave you with three prayer requests. Let us pray that God's power of blessing will be with us as we proclaim the gospel. Pray that unbelievers will believe and turn to the Lord for salvation and be added to our church. And then pray that we will remain steadfast in the Lord in the face of adversity, difficulty, and suffering. With your heads bowed. Heavenly Father, Thank you for the example of the church at Antioch. Thank you for using this church as a mission base for spreading the gospel to all peoples across the world. And Lord, we ask, we beg that you would use our church in the same way. Lord, help us to proclaim the gospel wherever we go. To remain true to you no matter what. And to give to people in need. And Lord, we ask that your hand of blessing would be upon us just as it was on the church at Antioch. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to ask you to respond by, by taking these three prayer requests to the Lord right now, right where you're seated. As the praise team sings a chorus, will you pray for these three needs of our church?